The gentleman from Ohio is recognized. Agent Strzok, isn't it true that you write Ally McBeal fan fiction? Uh, I don't know what you mean by writing about I mean, do you write for and run the Ally McBeal fan fiction site, BealLover.com? Congressman, I... Oh, let me answer it this way. The first, if I could uh, address the chairman. The chairman can't help you. Are you Beal Baby 69 and do you run the Beal Baby blog? I would love to answer that question. And every part of me, and you know why I'd want to answer that question, because you have this information. Yeah, I read the blog. You know that. That's not the point. Answer the question. I cannot answer that question. Can't or won't, sir. Can't or won't. What can you tell us about? All right, haters. That is more than enough of that bit. That takes far more audio editing than the ultimate payoff is worth. Uh, And I couldn't even think of that funny. Uh, So that was, you know, clips from the testimony of uh, Peter Strzok. Uh, philandering champion and deep state Martin Screlly, Peter Strzok. I want to play, you know, I'm not embarrassed to be an American, but you could say it's an embarrassing time to be an American, and Trump's a part of that, but he's not the only part. I mean, we're all we're all losing it, guys. I just want to play you uh, this clip from that testimony where really uh, no one, no one bays themselves in a... Uh, in a sea of sophistication. Let's no, let's listen to this part. Mr. What this man has done the gentleman from justice. Texas will suspend for a there moment. There is the disgrace. And it won't be recaptured anytime soon because of the damage you've done to the justice system. And I've talked to FBI agents around the country. You've embarrassed them. You've embarrassed yourself. And I can't help but wonder, when I see you looking there with a little smirk, how many times did you look so innocent into your wife's eyes and lie to her about oh, Lisa? Mr. Chairman, this is outrageous. The credibility of a witness Shame is always an issue. Mr. Chairman, this is intolerable harassment of the witness. What's wrong with that? You need your medication. The gentleman controls the time. Well, I ask that the witness be permitted to respond. Well, he, will be permit- he will be permitted to respond. Did you ever talk to Hillary Clinton? Sir, first, I assure you, under oath, as I spoke also during my interview a week or two ago, I have always told the truth. The fact that you would accuse me otherwise, the fact that you would question whether or not that was the sort of look I would engage with in a family member who I have acknowledged hurting, goes more to a discussion about your character and what you stand for and what is going inside you. It's to your credibility and lost your credibility. Both individuals have lost lost your credibility. While I doubt it plays well well the gentleman from Texas will suspend. The witness has had ample opportunity to express his feelings about that, and now the chair recognizes... Mr. Chairman, there is... Like, the first thing that jumps out to me, I mean, obviously... If you're ranking people, Peter Strzok is the is the more reasonable party in that exchange. But I do think his visage. I mean, the reason I call him Deep State Martin Shkreli, which is a uh, laughably unfair comparison, is that he's trolling, but he's not trolling Shkreli style. He's trolling righteous style. Like he has this indignance in his voice, Mister the. Sir, from Texas, I never, yes, I cheat on my wife and claim I'm going to take down the president when I can't to break off a little piece of that problematic workplace love, but I would never lie. Uh, you know, it, 
rubs me the wrong way, whatever. Louis Gohmert is a comical villain with a comical villain's voice. And then the star of the whole clip is, I don't even know who the woman is who's in the background who has the most cartoonish voice, the most cartoonish pearl-clutching voice ever who's going like, Mr. Chairman, you didn't take your medicine! Uh, it's great stuff. It's... We're like, if you ever, on The Daily Show and like early YouTube and stuff, they used to play these clips of, you know, Korean parliament or, you know, parliaments from around the world just devolving into fist fights. You know, we're about uh, two weeks uh, away from that. Um, since I played all this for comedic effect, I guess I should give a little uh, brief take on this. I, I definitely feel bad for Peter Strzok. I think it's unfortunate that he... He has Comey self-righteousness disease, but, you know, unlike Comey, who inserted himself into things, he's been sort of railroaded here because he uh, exaggerated to a woman he was sleeping with over text message, which, you know, if that's a crime, lock me up. Let there be hate. Adoing. What's up, haters, haitresses, and check this out. I got a new term. Welcome to the fucking family, jaders. That's a thing I invented for my legions of non-binary fans. Speaking of non-binary, I got two, I got two quick things up top. The first is uh, people should go see this Mr. Rogers movie. It's very sweet. Uh, this point has been made a million places, so I won't belabor it, but... My roommate and I were were discussing or theorizing why Paddington 2 could possibly have a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And the thing I theorized and seemed more true after seeing the Mr. Rogers movie is like, you know, cynicism and irony are so pervasive and so uh, exhausting and life-defirming or destabilizing that I think there really is like a longing in everyone for earnest sweetness. And if you feel like you might need that, you should go watch the Mr. Rogers movie because it's just like a portrait of a sweet, weird guy who sort of understood kids on a different level, but, you know, there was nothing untoward about it and his commitment was to sort of provide kids with, uh, you know, a supportive space in which to, like, learn certain simple moral lessons and stuff. And it's, it's just very sweet. Maybe, maybe Paddington 2 is too. I haven't seen that yet. But I definitely think, it, you know, a lot of the podcast guys I like, like Joe Rogan and uh, Dave Rubin, some of these other guys, they've discussed how, you know, when their shows get millions of downloads and, uh, you know, some of these podcasts are just so popular. Like, they do better ratings. Like, I think Joe Rogan show does better ratings than any cable news show, or, like, it has more views. Um, and they were theorizing, like, because the cable news has to reduce every issue to, like, 30-second clips uh, of, you know, sort of caricatures of the two sides of an argument, it's like, you know, we got a Black Lives Matter person, we got a racist cop. Black Lives Matter person, what do you think? Uh, the cops be out here murdering people. Okay, racist cop, what do you think? Uh the black people are committing lots of crimes. Okay, back to you, American people. And, like, we know that, you know, of course, uh, you could have an endless sophisticated conversation about policing. And I think Joe Rogan and these other guys, you know, Jordan Peterson and the Weinsteins and these folks were saying 
when they go around the world and when they like sell out shows and their podcasts are blowing up, they think it's because people are are desperate for the long form, sophisticated arguments about you know social and political issues that are absent in. And it's not just that they're absent; it's also that in some space, you know, there's like an academic space where there's also like a pretty robust intolerance of uh, non-progressive ideas. So it's like that's where you would normally go, you know, for a sort of if you wanted to do a deep dive uh, into a given topic, but the academy is totally corrupt. So there's this untapped market of like politically engaged, intellectually sophisticated citizens who just have no media and they're uh, exploding podcasts. And I think the movies may be showing there's also like uh, an untapped market of like people who like life <laughs> and goodness and joy. And uh, the only thing at the theater is the dark night, uh, you know, made a million different ways. And I love that shit too. You know, there's different, I can go see Mr. Rogers and then I can go see uh, Irreversible in the same night and uh, feel good about it. But yeah, oh, <laughs> my non-binary religion thing was, I got really mad. I was watching the ESPYs last night for God knows what reason. I don't know why they made Danica Patrick. Like, Danica Patrick didn't do anything bad. She just seemed sort of uncomfortable hosting the show. And it's like, why'd they, you know, if you select someone and then it's just like, doesn't seem like they're having fun and they're not good at it. What's the point? But whatever. But the ESPYs overall, I've never watched them through and, uh, it's the most emotionally manipulative TV event I've ever seen. Like, most award shows, it's, like, 80-20 of, like, relevant awards for, like, you know, categories. And then 20% is, like, in memoriams and celebrating people's humanitarian work. But the ESPYs was, like, literally just from, like, sob story to sob story with little interspersed sports awards, like, occasionally. And, you know, there's nothing, um, that's not wrong. Some of them are really cool. The Jim Kelly one, in particular, I found quite affecting. But, like, I can't handle uh, four really impactful emotional stories thrown at me in quick succession. Like, I want to sort of stew on one and have, like, dumb sports stuff going on again so I can reflect or whatever, not just... I'm still thinking about Jim Kelly, and then they bring out 300 young women who were sexually assaulted by uh, Dr. Larry Nasser. Like, I don't know how I'm... There's a point at which your brain becomes very much like the, the Stalin, like, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths are a statistic. Like, if you're presented with too much affecting emotional information at once, you just, like, this. at least this is my experience of it, like, the system overloads, and then I find myself being indifferent to something that's, like, crazy and then I'm mad at myself for my indifference but like I do think it's ESPN's fault like we evolved not to be able to comprehend what genocide is uh but to help like a person dying in front of us so like you know if you give me too much tragedy I short circuit um oh but I brought up the ESPYs because uh there's this Bonobos ad that was pissing me off. It's a bunch of guys, most of them seemingly gay, some of them trans, some of them might just be straight guys that were selected for their uh, diminutive femininity, and they read the definition of masculinity, they get pissed off about it, and then they talk about what masculinity means to them. I'll just play it here so you know what I'm talking about. Masculine. 
adjective. Having qualities or appearance traditionally associated with men. Especially strength and aggressiveness. Some of the synonyms are macho, manly, muscular, <laughs> well-built, red-blooded, red-blooded, my goodness, strapping, strong, brawny, powerful. None of these really sound like me. <laughs> I think that definition is a little scary. It's too small for something so big. It's all about trying to get people to conform and be a certain way. I think that's what gets us in trouble is when we say that there's only one way to be a man. So many individuals, they try and fit, and it just gets to a point where it's too much. Where they are doing harm to each other and harm to themselves. You don't have to do that. You define your own masculinity. You define who you are. For me, being masculine is being honest. This is the body that I have. This is what I know. So to me, this is what a man is. For me, being masculine means being brave enough to be who I am. Being able to smile, being able to cry, being able to love and be loved. That's the man I want to be. What does it mean to me to be masculine? Um, it's more a question of what does it mean to be human? Okay, so I'm probably just being insane and massively parochial here, but I think what outrages me about this is there's a sleight of hand that I think is... I don't know if it's conscious or unconscious, but it's... Uh, like, my initial reaction was like, okay, masculinity is a word everyone would accept, including me, uh, that the traditional definition is narrow, but what I would really prefer is for someone to read the definition of masculinity and say, uh, the traditional definition of masculinity left a lot of people out, and it's not how I want to be in the world. I find it's, you know, healthier to be more emotional than traditional masculinity. What I don't like is making the argument that the actual word has to be expanded. Not that we would say you know, traditional masculinity is no longer the measure of an ideal man, which I think we, we would all say, I would say. Though I do think traditional masculinity has merit, it has virtue, but probably you want uh, a distribution of people with, you know, different levels of it, uh, and maybe it has, like, a time and a place. But I don't think... The sleight of hand to me is to say, okay... I am a man who's a little different than the traditional definition of, of masculine, and I've been left out. By the way, that could apply to me. Like, you know, I was mostly raised by my mom. I feel like I'm a little bit feminine. I'm certainly maternal. Like, I get very excited about the prospect of raising kids. I think I'm sort of like a caregiver. So I definitely have some dominant traits. I think I have some dominant traits that are both traditionally masculine and traditionally feminism feminist and or feminine sorry and i don't think uh that's particularly troubling to me so these people give an account of they're like okay i read this word and it doesn't describe me and that's like oppressive or unfair because i am a man so of course the way i exist in the world should be a part of this definition of masculinity and i think what I don't like is that, like, the first part is a totally sympathetic narrative that I think, you know, 80% of people under 40 get. They understand that, you know, as the guy in the 
uh, ad says, there's a long-standing pressure to conform with normative cis heterosexuality version of a man. I don't know, Clark Kent, insert whoever you want. And so the solution to that is to allow people to be uh, more things than that. And I have to say, for young people, for coastal elites, for, you know, groups I criticize often, I think we have achieved that. I think in our social lives, there are many more ways uh, to be uh, a man and express yourself and live in the world as a man than before. And I think our social circles are, you know, for millennials, I think we're much more tolerant of that diversity, you know, than any other group of people in history. But now this ad seems to me to be saying the very existence of the concept of masculinity in the culture is a threat to people who don't conform to it. And that's the part where it seems to me like you're taking the very sympathetic personal stories uh, of, you know, gay people, trans people, people who don't identify with, you know, anything uh, or who fall into a different sexual minority or gender minority. And you're saying you're moving, you're laundering those uh, sympathetic stories where you have the vast majority of, say, young people, people who might shop at Bonobos on your side. And then you're shifting to the conclusion in, a la- in an argument about speech, in an argument about language, about ideas, and about changing the nature. Like, my goal is to have a society where people can do what they want and love who they want and, you know, adopt whatever gender expression they want. I don't want the definition of masculinity in the actual fucking Oxford English Dictionary in 30 years to be like, it's whatever you want, bro. Here's a picture of a bulldog. Here's a picture of a, you know, a Tinkerbell. It's all the same. It's all equally associated with uh, traditional masculinity because nothing means anything. There is no history. There is no culture. There is no human nature. It's just what we invent. And as long as you even retain the implication that there were at a time things, uh, qualities that <laughs> express themselves more dominantly in men and women is a threat to the existence of sexual minorities. So scrub it uh, from the books. That's my insane cultural reactionary overreaction of the day. It's nice when you have these clips. I could even cut them. It's like, you know, if I ever become uh, <laughs> anyone who matters in any sphere, I'm sure this is one of... Uh, many hate-filled screeds that'll get you know cut up and and launched back in my faith, but face. But I think my my prospects of mainstream success are low, so I think I'm also justified in in not being uh, deterred by that reality. So a lot of people were texting me. I say a lot of people. It's like three to get a reaction about the whole NATO thing. Um, sorry, NATO. Trump in Helsinki with Putin, and then today there's this weird addendum of Montenegro uh, and Article 5 and, you know, all this shit. So I think here's the first thing I want to say. Trump, to me, you know, I've, I've said on here a lot of times that, like, 
I think the Trump presidency could have had some productive potential in that destabilizing events can often like test things and shake up things that the status quo couldn't. But I don't know that so far I would say he's been successful in any of that, Um, though I think it'll take time to see. But, you know, increasingly, I don't understand his character. And certainly with... uh, like, like, for example, I think one thing I begrudgingly admired about Trump, like, think of Trump as a villain in a comic book you like, but he's sort of, over time, he's one of your, the characters you like, you like to follow. Maybe you, as you find yourself reading the comic, there's, there's a certain quality to the villain's behavior that is interesting or unique, and you find this figure very compelling. I felt that way about Trump a little, and I thought his superpower was never backing down, never having shame, never apologizing, never letting your opponent's narrative leak into your narrative even a little bit. And I think, again, I didn't agree with almost anything he said or did. I mean, sometimes I agree with things, but I think more often than not, I don't. But I did admire that, like, I think there's this whole media and now social media and uh, just, like, cultural consensus construction whereby if you deviate from uh, certain ideas, people bully you and tell you back down. And I remember sort of having admiration for Rob Lagojevich because, you know, being in D.C., you, you encounter, like, PR people and crisis management people, and they're always trying—they have all this— uh, you know, wisdom they say about how you, you know, you apologize, the cover-up is worse than the crime, you have to own your mistake, and then you'll be rehabilitated. And I do admire people who are, like, so nihilistic but also self-possessed that they're like, no, as long as I lie, the world will never be sure, and I can just lie forever till I die, and maybe it'll work. And the person I remember associating with this most was Rob Lagojevich, because he there was literally a tape of him very clearly offering the Senate seat for sale to someone, and they could play it for him, and he'd go on late night and be like, I wasn't talking about what, you know, you say I was talking about. This is misconstrued. And, you know, he was just so bold in his lies that I thought, like, you know, I'm not in a place where I'm, I've gone, like, full nihilist irony with the modern world where, like, I no longer believe there's a moral way of being in the world, and the best thing to do is just embrace the chaos and fucking make sure you have the best chaos way of surfboard and uh, try to make it as far as you can. But when I encounter such people that are agents of chaos, I admire them much more than, like, the fastidious climbers, than, like, people I went to high school with who have a totally uncheckered past. You know, give me, you know, they say Erdogan before he was, and I don't fucking like Erdogan, but they say Erdogan before, he was just like a street tough, like knifing people in his poor neighborhood in Istanbul. And then he, give me one of those hustlers any day over just some kid. You know, there were kids I went to college with who were like, I won't do cocaine because maybe I want to be, have this job one day. And it's like, you are fucking boring and pathetic And, uh, you know, I don't know. It's like I like people or maybe I just admire because I can't relate to it much. I mean, I think I am influenced a lot by both sort of like social norms in society and other people's opinions of me. And so when I see someone 
who's totally willing to create and live in their own reality while the rest of us allow ourselves to be totally buffeted about by other people's realities, including ones that are clearly ill-formed, I do feel like it's a fucking superpower. And so when Trump made this childlike excuse, you know, this dog ate my homework bullshit excuse of he meant to say would instead of wouldn't or wouldn't instead of would, it's like the mask sort of fell for me. It's like the only compelling thing about you is that you refuse to give an inch and now you just gave an inch and you sort of look like a cuck bitch, which like, you know, I thought you were a bad guy. I thought you were a dumb guy, but I was somewhat willing to... uh think that there might be times where you have the biggest dick in the room. Now I don't believe that anymore. Um, Just getting to the broader question of, like, his bizarre behavior with uh, Vladimir Putin and on Russia in general, I think there's a lot of things that are confusing about this to me. I mean, I have to say, I don't—one of two things is happening. I don't think the president is acting— the way a president who colluded with Russia would act. First of all, I don't think Trump is driving these policies, but Trump has not been able to stop institutional neocons from getting some things done that are anti-Russia. The primary one being the change from the time of the Obama administration to uh, arming the Ukrainians, uh, which is something Russia really doesn't like. And uh, also, when Bannon was a part of, you know, the formation of the Republican platform at the convention, specifically put into the platform that they would not do that. So that's like a neocon-esque reversal. So that could mean a couple things. That could mean Trump says, oh, if I do this, that'll, that'll clear me space on Russia accusations. But then obviously, the, if, he's, if he's trying to develop a strategy for distancing himself from Russia, then he wouldn't speak the way he does, either about Russia or Putin. So that's not consistent. And then I also think, you know, it is possible that he's, that if there is some collusion thing, and you know, I've never been convinced, but it's also possible that he's just failing to deliver, that, you know, at some point there was some discussion of uh, not harming Ukrainians and Trump just lost that fight, you know, within his own cabinet or whatever. I don't know. But it's although that probably would have leaked if, if Trump was fighting behind the scenes to not arm the Ukrainians and, you know, Mattis or whoever convinced him to do it. Uh, someone would have leaked that shit because that's salacious. And all these fuckers do is leak. Um, I was on the Hill, actually, during the Putin-Trump press conference, and people—I was in Republican offices, and people were so depressed (laughs) and so upset. Uh, And yeah, you know, he he likes strongmen in general, it seems. You know, people will ask me, like, what's the possible explanation for this behavior beyond— beyond collusion? And, you know, Robert Wright— noted on his podcast that the explanation is for why Trump would continue to deny parts of the collusion narrative is that at least the way the liberal media presents it, the collusion is what caused him to win or was part of what caused him to win. So he may feel that if he accepts, uh, you know, anything about 
the Russian meddling, even without implicating himself, if he just acknowledges that it's now totally clear that Russia meddled with the election and, you know, leaked the DNC emails and all this shit, that that would invalidate his victory. And, you know, because he's uh, egomaniacal and thin-skinned or whatever, uh, he's unwilling to do so. Um, so that's possible, but it's just so bizarre, man. Like, it's all... I can't... I can't follow the thread here. And certainly... This behavior, because here's another confusing thing. Like, he went to NATO countries and he said, you need to spend 2% on uh, your own, 2% of GDP on your own national defense. This will make NATO stronger and it'll make you stronger. And it means that you'll be less reliant on us for deterring Russia and, you know, other threats. And the media was reporting that, like, Trump's being critical of NATO allies. This is unprecedented. But there is a narrative here where American presidents, I mentioned this on a previous podcast, American presidents have consistently wanted uh, European countries to pay more both into NATO. Like this was a big thing for Barack Obama, and he was very critical of these countries not paying for their own defense behind the scenes. And now Trump's taking it public. So it seems to me you know, the media was saying he's trying to blow up this relationship. He's trying to piss them off so that NATO collapses. But that didn't seem to be the case to me because after Trump left, several countries announced they would raise the threshold. Now, we don't know if they're going to follow through and probably they won't. Um, but, you know, his to me, it was the, it was possible or even probable that his bluster was meant to elicit a response in terms of them actually swelling their own defense budgets, not to collapse NATO. But then today, he's complaining about Montenegro in Article 5 and saying, really, we would, as NATO members, we would have to go to war if this stupid little fucking country uh, got attacked, which is, you know, uh, what Article 5 says. It's only been invoked after 9-11. Um, and I think what's funny is that, like, People have these conversations. Like, one conversation I've heard is, like, you know, China people will have conversations of, like, okay, we've told Taiwan, like, a million years ago that if China attacks them, we have their back. But, like, would we really go to war with China if they invade, like, an island to their south? We're going to start World War III over fucking Taiwan. And I think the thing is, everybody acknowledges that that argument shouldn't be had in public, because it's destabilizing. Like, you send the message that you would go to war over Taiwan to deter China from doing anything weird in Taiwan, though they're doing lots of weird stuff in Taiwan. Uh, and if they actually call your bluff, maybe you then have a discussion about whether it's a bluff or not. Similar with Montenegro. I mean, it is true that uh, if Montenegro was attacked by Russia— you know, Article 5 would likely be invoked, and the theoretical obligation of NATO countries would be to jump to their defense. But, you know, lots of defense-minded people might say, we're not going to go full-on war with... There's lots of ways of, you know, jumping to defense, whatever, whatever. We're not going to... Maybe there are lots of people who believe you shouldn't start World War III over Montenegro, including in the national security apparatus, but they'd never say it out loud because... All it does is lessen the deterrent for Russia to do something. And it's, it's destabilizing in the sense that, 
you know, Russia may think there's sort of an active balance about how far they can push. And now Trump's questioning the wisdom of enforcing that deterrence logic, which is in and of itself destabilizing and, you know, beneficial to Russia. Um, So, you know, you could chalk that up to stupidity, but all this shit is so weird. I mean, I don't I don't look at it and conclude what so many people seem to conclude, which is like this is live collusion. Like it is not collusion just to claim that a bad actor's priorities are more in line with our priorities than is the conventional wisdom. I mean, if that were treason, then anybody who advocated the Iran deal would be treasonous. You know, it's not... um, Now, it would be a little different aesthetically because nobody got on a stage with Ahmadinejad and said, this guy's great uh, and they have a great country over there and, you know, some of this stuff was our fault. But, like, the other interesting thing that's going on is... You know, Trump's behavior unites people who don't actually agree. Like, I'm, I'm very worried that these, like, I think progressives and people on the left hate Trump because he's a Republican. Like, when you see them cite the things they consider disastrous, uh, they'll say things like this. This press conference and literally like all the NatSec people in my Twitter feed were just like, dear Lord, this is the most indignity the U.S. has suffered since Pearl Harbor. And it's like, I think they don't understand that for most people, like, the degradation of the romance of the presidency is not even a thing that you can degrade. Like, they have no... To them, there's no pomp and circumstance to the system. There's no... uh, You know, the pig never had lipstick on, so you can't take it off. They're really just more upset about separating families, about massive tax cuts for the rich, and about Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. In other words, they think it's the end of the world because there's a conservative in the White House, and they always think that's the end of the world. Meanwhile, Rick Wilson and, you know, whoever the fuck else, David Frum, think it's the end of the world because there's a you know, nickel and dime thug from Queens in the White House, and they think he doesn't deserve to sit on the really nice sofa. And that's a totally different problem, but they're, like, agreeing with each other on Twitter. Uh, And, you know, I think I have sympathy with both groups. Like, I like America and am more romantic about it and the institutions than probably is justified. I'm also very sympathetic to people who want to blow it up. Um, But I think it's just important for those two groups to keep in mind that they're not really fighting the same thing. And I think it's also important for the establishment. To me, the reason it's problematic, I mean, this happens all the time where disparate political coalitions or political groups find themselves in a coalition to a common end, in this case, getting rid of Trump. But I think what's dangerous about the national security establishment being like, yes, the whole country is angry because he licked Putin's boots, is it's like, no, you don't get it. You had never since you know, the fall of the, the Soviet Union, you had never told a good story about why we should still fear Russia. And in the wake of the Iraq war, I think a lot of Americans think this is just the belligerent political class, the the neocon people, uh, the war machine money doing the same thing they always do, which is drum up conflict where they don't need to. And if you just look at the headlines, it is sort of a confusing story because it's like, 
you know, this isn't the Soviet Union. This is the post-Soviet government. They fight terrorism. They're a big country involved in the global economy. So are we. Like, what's the fucking problem? And I think, you know, because all these foreign policy decisions are made at the elite level and you don't need voter, uh, you know, you don't need, like, voter... um, I mean, this is another reason why just everything needs more congressional oversight and... Uh, you know, the foreign policy hegemony of the executive is probably a problem. But I think there's a lot of little things around the world that add up to massive impacts that Russia does towards creating a world that is different than the world the United States would want to live in. And that's why it's important to to cut them off uh, in certain ways in their efforts around the world. But I don't think that story's been told. And so when people who worked in the State Department for 10 years or were in the Army or were intelligence officers just are like, it's so obvious that Putin is terrible and obviously the enemy, I'm not sure that story... I'm not sure that was ever explained. And it is a different problem because, you know, the Soviet Union represented a way of life that was viewed as like an existential competitor. Putin is this uh, another sort of like petty thug who the types of things he does that are really problematic for us is, you know, where we would try to promote uh, like the modernizing of political institutions. He tries to protect entrenched regimes. He has financial relationships with criminal organizations, terrorist networks, supports all the kind of actors that destabilize the global order that we use to protect sea lanes and sell things and import things. Uh, He's sort of an opponent of like Western multilateralism, NATO, for reasons we can understand, they're threatening to Russia. Um, But yeah, so, and also obviously like they have an interest in uh, both undermining, you know, public confidence in our media, which the media did, you know, plenty of, of that by itself. And then also just undermining our democratic institutions. Uh, And I think the reason they do that is because the sort of robust, strong America is an America that also marches around the world, and if not with guns, certainly with with words and with uh, carrots, incentivizes people to have uh, open societies with responsive institutions, and that's not what Russia is. So I think that's the nature of the conflict, and you could explain that to people, and you could also say this doesn't really rise to the level of violent conflict. We're just going to take like law enforcement steps and espionage steps and public relations steps and, you know, multilateral partnership, excluding Russia steps to uh, address all of these various issues. And people might say, oh, okay. But when you just say like, you know, Putin sucks, he's a tyrant, Trump's a tyrant, he's licked his boots. Like, I think people here, uh, you know, it it is a little weird, with especially when it's like MSNBC sort of appears to be like joining the war chorus. Like, how could you even talk to these people? Like, it's just a weird inversion. And again, I can't explain Trump's behavior, and I wouldn't blame anyone for certainly watching the thing and coming out of it thinking collusion was way more likely, even if that's not is something I'm yet convinced of, though I'm certainly not less uh, convinced of collusion after that press conference. But I, I don't, I don't know what I think. But the point is, like, I feel like these national security people are really feeling themselves as if uh, 
they understand the nature of the public outrage with Trump, but they don't really. They're free riders who are upset about very sort of parochial concerns that are definitely different. Like, they're policing, like, the the global reputation and traditions of American empire. And in general, American empire is something citizens never asked for, aren't interested in, and maybe agree with Trump should be uh, shrunk. And, you know, that's not a bad argument. So I'm, I guess I'm, I'm troubled in that sense. Um, I also think right now, like, the conversation about reputation and reliability is really uh, shallow um, and unsophisticated. And I would like to, you know, I wish there were more people talking about because, like, going back to the NATO thing, like, yelling at your NATO partners, if everyone believes the point of you yelling is to get them to spend more into defense because you're being a dick because you really care about NATO, in other words, that would be fine. But if your behavior makes NATO members question your commitment to NATO, that's destabilizing and bad. And, you know, the other thing that happens is then even if people believe you at the NATO summit, when you give this performance in Helsinki and then you say this weird shit about Montenegro, if the NATO allies weren't worried what your real message was before... Now they probably are. And then, furthermore, like, you know, because I, I get upset with all this reputational stuff. I, pe- I feel like people talk about this di- diplomatic shit like decorum is a thing that matters, and it's not. They talk about, like, Trump, you know, insulting Theresa May by saying Boris Johnson would be a great PM. I mean, it's a dick move for sure, but, like, our alliance with England, like, the message, you can be a dick while sending the message that you're a committed ally who can be relied upon to uphold past agreements. The problem with Trump is that no one understands the message he's broadcasting, or if they do receive a message, the message is a lessening of U.S. commitment and a lessening of predictability of what's going to come out of the United States. And the reason that's actually damaging is because when European powers do, you know, new negotiations about security cooperation or even economic partnerships, they will leave the U.S. out. And typically, I think the U.S. has gained a lot from uh, leading those, uh, you know, types of cooperative efforts, uh, you know, to say nothing of being a part of them. And I think one of the problems here is that, you know, you you can leave the international multilateral things that you don't believe in and you think hurt your voters. Like, say the Paris Accords. You want to give some red meat to coal miners, okay, leave it. But that doesn't mean uh, that you want to stop security cooperation with France. Like, there's no—people aren't losing coal jobs because we share intelligence with the French. Like, it's just a good arrangement, uh, and you want them to feel that it's a reliable arrangement. Um, And I think they probably do. I don't—you know, I think the the institutions, law enforcement and intelligence services— work well together and will continue to even if the president's a dick. But again, the dickishness, I think, is less problematic than just nobody knowing uh, what this president wants, what his priorities are, and what he's willing to do in terms of you know, reversing the traditional position of the United States. So that is destabilizing in a way that I just think the boorishness 
is not. And they're sort of elided in the press. I think they're two distinct things. I think Trump's bad about both of them. And one is uh, way more significant than another. 